This is the Morning Press, a BrainIron.com production. Here's 11 minutes or so of news for today, Thursday, February 8th, 2024. The Supreme Court heard arguments on Thursday as to whether or not former President Donald Trump can legally be barred by the Colorado Supreme Court from appearing on the presidential ballot this year on the basis of a provision of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that disallows those who have engaged in insurrection from holding office under the United States. Justices from both sides of the ideological divide seemed skeptical of the Colorado court's decision, with Chief Justice John Roberts pointing out that the text of the 14th Amendment makes it clear that its purpose was to restrict state power rather than create a new state power. Justice Elena Kagan noting that a ruling in Colorado's favor would grant individual states an extraordinary amount of power over the ability of other states to select a president, and Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson expressing doubt that the insurrection clause even applies to the office of president. The justices also seemed to express a consistent belief that without action from Congress, an individual could not be barred from holding office. In other words, the provision is not self-executing, able to be enforced by whoever so chooses, but enforceable only by congressional legislation, perhaps not even until after an election has taken place, but before that person has been sworn in. The question of whether or not Trump's actions actually amounted to an insurrection hardly came up at all, making it unlikely that they will speak to that issue in their ruling. The consensus of court observers was that the court will rule in Trump's favor, probably 8-1 or 9-0, at some point in the coming weeks. A brief editorial aside. When Colorado's Supreme Court handed down their decision back in December, my first impression was that this was going to be an easy win for the Trump camp, and that the court would find, in some narrowish way, that Colorado had acted beyond its constitutional remit hopefully unanimously. I have read dozens of pieces since that laid out all the ways I was surely wrong, that this was an easy case in the opposite direction, and that only Trump loyalty or fealty to their ideological brethren would permit the justices to rule in Trump's favor. My mind was not changed by these many articles, but I did begin to doubt that a nonpartisan ruling was going to be forthcoming. I was greatly relieved then, this afternoon, listening to Roberts frame the question in terms of whose power the 14th seeks to limit, and the court's liberals, Kagan and Jackson, more or less expressed the same skepticism I had upon reading the Colorado ruling. Not because I was right, but because I sincerely think that a ruling that comes down 5-4 or 6-3 would be harmful to public perception that the law is, or ought to be, a non-political affair. It's also satisfying on another level. My AP government teacher in high school, Miss Brennan, used to joke that the best thing about the Supreme Court is that there is no requirement that the justices even be lawyers, or otherwise specially trained in the law. She made us all promise that should we ever become the President of the United States, we would pull her out of retirement and appoint her to the court. It is perhaps a silly idea, but the unstated heart of the point has always stuck with me. 
One of the most important facets of our democracy, such as it is, is that any dope who can read has just as much a right to an opinion of constitutional import as anybody else. You don't need to have gone to Harvard Law to read and understand the Constitution. It's right there to be read and thought about, no more dense or jargony than your average newspaper article. Constitutional law, as an object of study, is inviting and rewarding for any citizen who chooses to engage with it, and in so doing can find themselves participating in the project of self-government, an easy sort of civic engagement that lends legitimacy to the whole system. Expertise is important and even indispensable in all technical fields, including the law, but crucially, not necessarily when it comes to the basic questions of how we relate to government and how it accrues and deploys power. The transparency and simplicity of the Constitution is a powerful democratizing force in our system, and it's nice to be reminded of that by the highest court in the land, especially after a month of reading many experts telling me that I was wrong. Robert Herr, the special counsel appointed by Attorney General Merrick Garland to investigate President Joe Biden's alleged mishandling of classified documents, released a report on Thursday in which he asserted that his team had found evidence that Biden had willfully and wrongly retained highly classified information as a private citizen after his term as vice president, but also said that criminal charges were not warranted in the case. Justice Department guidelines preclude the prosecution of a sitting president, but Herr's report said that the decision to decline prosecution for the crimes would have been reached regardless. Herr found that most of the classified documents were likely retained by mistake, but that there was evidence that at least some of the papers, including records that documented his fierce opposition to a 2009 troop surge in Afghanistan, were kept on purpose and shared with the ghostwriter of his memoirs. Quote, he consulted the notebooks liberally during hours of discussions with his ghostwriter and viewed them as highly private and valued possessions with which he was unwilling to part, end quote. Perhaps most damaging to Biden is the special counsel's assessment of his memory, which her described as quite faulty and inconsistent on a number of questions, including being unable to recall the year of his son Bo's death, the specific years that he served as vice president, and the details of his position on debates about Afghanistan within the Obama administration. Her presented these memory lapses as a possible explanation for why the classified documents were at Biden's house at all, suggesting that he might have discovered them and intended to properly return them, but simply forgot. At trial, the report says, quote, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview of him, as a sympathetic, well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory, end quote. Also in perfectly legitimate questions about the brain health of the most ostensibly powerful individual on Earth news, President Biden has at least twice this week made reference to recent conversations with long-dead European leaders. At a fundraiser on Wednesday, Biden recounted a conversation he said he had with German Chancellor Helmut Kohl about the events of January 6, 2021. Cole died in 2017, nearly 20 years after leaving political life. 
On Sunday, speaking at a campaign rally in Las Vegas, Biden spoke about an interaction with French President Francois Mitterrand, suggesting that he sat at a table and had a conversation with him at the same G7 meeting where he apparently met with the deceased Helmut Kohl. Mitterrand, who led France from 1981 through 1995, died in January of 1996. A brief and entirely unrelated aside in order to read from the website alzheimers.org and an article about dementia and time-shifting for no particular reason at all. Quote, What causes time-shifting? A person with dementia often has damage to their short-term memory. This means they may rely more on older memories to make sense of things now. The person may feel like they are living in the past because they're using older memories to fill in the gaps to make sense of the present. End quote. A law firm working for Taylor Swift has threatened a University of Central Florida college student named Jack Sweeney with legal action over a collection of social media accounts he runs that take the publicly available flight data of high-profile private aircraft and post the information for all to see on the Internet. This is not the first time Sweeney has made headlines for these tactics. Back in 2022, he was booted off Twitter after he refused to stop tracking the travels of Elon Musk's private jets. To be clear, Sweeney is simply taking already public information from the Federal Aviation Administration or other organizations that simply identify the movements of private aircraft by their mandated communications equipment and then posting the info online. His various social media accounts, run by bots that scrape the info automatically, have tracked the jets of Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Donald Trump, Drake, Mark Cuban, Ron DeSantis, and many Russian oligarchs. The cease-and-desist letter from Swift's legal team claimed that Swift and her family were being put in mortal danger by the publication of her private jet's travel itinerary causing, quote, direct and irreparable harm, as well as emotional and physical distress, end quote. The billionaire pop star's lawyers also claimed that there is, quote, no legitimate interest in or public need for this information, other than to stalk, harass, and exert dominion and control, end quote. A brief editorial aside... Last month, Sweeney's jet tracking account logged a 13-minute, 28-mile jaunt for Swift's jet from Illinois to Missouri. According to Google Maps, the same trip could be accomplished with a short drive along Interstate 64 and includes a beautiful view of the Gateway Arch as you cross over the Mississippi River into Missouri. In 2022, Swift topped a list of the globe's worst individual pollution offenders in a report that found that her jet averaged less than 140 miles per flight with an average flight time of less than 90 minutes and that her planes traveled incessantly. I am not one to begrudge the wealthy whatever obscenities and indulgences they choose to spend their near-limitless resources on. But it seems obvious to me that the cost of such extravagance is going to be extracted one way or another. 
If the financial bottom line is not enough to put you off the lifestyle, because money is no object, then perhaps the unpleasant social opprobrium that comes with having one's body privilege put on public display is the only avenue left to make you really pay. It would be to my preference that weirdos not take the information and stalk Taylor Swift, to whatever degree that is even possible. It seems quite a stretch to me that knowing what city her jet is in makes it any easier to do the truly invasive work of personal stalking. But the publicly available flight data of her private jet on the internet is just information, and Mr. Sweeney is not doing anything wrong. Just as she employs a 24-7 team of personal security wherever she goes, just as she happily funds extravagant private jet travel, just as she enlists a law firm to threaten the college kid with the Twitter account, just as she zooms 15 miles across state lines, or 11,000 miles from the Grammys to Japan and over to Vegas in the space of a few days, Swift, like any billionaire, can easily write off any expense at all, as simply the cost of doing business. This is all normal because of her desires and her choices and her resources. And it is perfectly normal that the real cost of being one of the most wealthy and famous people in the history of the world isn't extracted in dollars, but in privacy and anonymity. These are the explicit terms of the bargain Swift struck. This is the cost of getting everything. But apparently, everything is still not enough. Not when there's a kid in Florida who trained a Twitter bot to log the location of a personal aircraft owned by one of Swift's holding companies. Sweeney is the one exerting dominion and control? You need to calm down, Taylor. In briefer news, Five U.S. Marines were declared dead after their helicopter went down in the mountains outside San Diego Tuesday night. They were returning from training exercises in Las Vegas, and stormy weather apparently caused the crash, with heavy snow delaying the ability of first responders to reach the site. Self-help author and love enthusiast Marianne Williamson announced that she is suspending her campaign to challenge Joe Biden for the Democratic presidential nomination on Wednesday after racking up 2% of the vote in South Carolina and 3% in Nevada. Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips is now the lone remaining challenger to Biden with anything like a national profile. The next Democratic primary contest will be in Michigan on February 27th, before more than a dozen states take to the polls on Super Tuesday, March 5th. And Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor of New York who served as legal counsel for former President Trump in the aftermath of the 2020 election, told a judge in a federal bankruptcy court that Trump's campaign and the RNC owe him about $2 million in unpaid legal fees. Giuliani is pleading his bankruptcy case in the wake of a ruling in a defamation suit that ordered that he pay $148 million to two Georgia election workers for having defamed them. A brief editorial aside, it is extremely funny that Rudy Giuliani told absurd and baseless lies on behalf of Donald Trump to the point that a jury ordered him to fork over nearly $150 million and that Trump never even bothered to pay him for his work. 
quote, when we submitted the invoice for payment, they just paid the expenses. Not all, but most. They never paid the legal fees, end quote. With friends like these, eh, Rudy? Now, here's a look at the weather. Today, February 8th, 2024, well, on the West Coast, anyway, marks the 92nd birthday of composer John Williams, who is, I believe, the single most important composer of music in American history. He scored Jaws, Close Encounters, Superman, Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Indiana Jones, Home Alone, E.T., and Harry Potter, just to name a few. Most of which, if I asked you to, right now, you could probably hum a few bars of. Some, no doubt, look down upon his life's work as a low sort of art, because some are awful. And besides, we're a low sort of people. Williams has written the soundtrack to a huge portion of popular culture for the last 50 years, and his music is inseparable from not just the films he composed for, but from the very notion of American cinema. I believe more of his music is recognizable to more people on the planet than anyone else you can name. Is this a chauvinistic, myopic, modern American-centric claim born of pure cultural imperialism and Western supremacy? Of course it is, but prove me wrong. from here. How's it look out your window? The Morning Press is a production of the BrainIron.com multinational media empire. Please direct comments and complaints to brainironpodcast at gmail.com. For a transcript of today's episode and links to the stories referenced, find The Morning Press at brainiron.substack.com, where, if you would like to support this and the other podcasting and blogging endeavors of the brainiron.com media empire, you can also become a paying subscriber. If you can think of anyone else who might enjoy whatever it is we're up to around here, please consider sharing. Thanks, and barring the sudden onset of the inevitable, We'll talk to you tomorrow. The proceeding was created with 100% human content.